Okay, so hello again, everybody. It's Graham here, and uh, welcome to another edition of the Heart Shapes Decisions podcast. And um, today I've got uh, somebody that I've only had, I've actually only had one telephone conversation with prior to this uh, interview. And um, the gentleman's name is Lee Dale, and he's got a very interesting story. He's from Stoke-on-Trent in the, in the um, I guess, in the Potteries, which is a... a Something that I, I'm very, you know, I'm very keen to maybe find out a bit about uh, the history of that area. I like, I like the area. I've recently moved into the West Midlands myself after a long period of time on the east of the country, and I really like the uh, the history over here. And so um, maybe you might be able to share a bit of that that you know. I don't know, but anyway. So a, a warm welcome to you, Lee, and thank you so much for coming on the. Art Shape Decisions podcast. So, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do at the moment, and what your and what your what your sort of aims and hopes are? Oh, cheers, Graham! That real, really great introduction. Um, yeah. Uh, so, my name's Lee Lee Dale. Um, what can I say? What What I do now? I'm our community development coordinator um, for a, a lottery funded program. Uh, part right. of the Fulfilling Life mm-hmm. Programme, which is a national 12-area mm-hmm. um, programme. And, yeah, <laughs> uh, but that's not the interesting part, I think, Graham. I think the interesting part is how I got there. Um, so I've been in this role currently now for nearly 20 months, so nearly two years I've been mm-hmm. in this role. Yeah. Um, so prior to that, I, I, I spent um, a decade, um, 10 years, um, and reoccurring homelessness, um, rough sleeping, um, living in hostels, temporary accommodation, right. shared accommodation at mm-hmm. times through a charity in Stoke-on-Trent. And I felt like I was going to be stuck in that loop for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, genuinely had that feeling that there was no way of me climbing back up out the ladder and into normal life, so to speak, yeah. whatever a normal life may be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how did I get in that position is another interesting one. Um, so yeah, I'll go. I'll go back to the start. Um, Nineteen seventy-eight um, was the year I was born, yeah. and I was born. Um, parents were unemployed, mm. and my parents were homeless at the time of my birth. Wow. Um, the local authority at the time put us into temporary accommodation in the form of a caravan on, on a caravan site right. where I lived up until nineteen eighty-five. Um, so up to the age of seven, I, I grew up on, on a caravan, on a, on a low-scale uh, private caravan park, uh, okay. temporary accommodation. Uh, what did that mean to me at the time? Uh, not really much. Um, I, I think the effects of that sort of reared the head in my teenage life. Mm. Um, so let me explain why that, why that would be. Um, th- that would be essentially because I was perceived to have come from a travelling family. Right. Um, as living on a caravan by my peers at the time uh, yeah. in the area, so that sort of <clears throat> sort of a, sort of acquired some unwanted attention at school. Let's say, right. yeah. uh, in terms of people thinking I come from a, a travelling community, as, right. you can, as you can imagine, some of the stigma yes, involved. Okay. With yeah. Um, so yeah, so, so from an early age, there uh, I was sort of dealing with being a part of a marginalised group already. Uh, I get to the age of 14. Um, My father was an alcoholic. He was an ex-miner. He was unemployed at the time of my birth, but he was a miner in Stoke-on-Trent. 
Right. And he died when I was 14 um, of an alcohol-related illness, uh, ultimately had cirrhosis of the liver. Um, So from the age of 12 to 14, Mm. my father was very ill, very, very ill. And Mm -hmm. it was quite regular that my father would get to a point, because he also had... He had stomach ulcers. Right. Um, so some days I'd be getting up, I'd be getting up to go to school and I'd witness my dad vomiting vomiting blood, okay. um, essentially. Wow. And I would go to school wow. and with that in the back of my head, I couldn't concentrate in school. Um, it was really hard. Uh, I didn't know whether, what I was going home to. I didn't know whether I was going to go home. My father had passed. And right. yeah, it was quite a bit of a negative time of my life um ultimately died when i was 14 um i was in high school um, quite an important stage of life yeah um you'd think coming up for your mock exams um, going into your mainstream exams uh, and ultimately coming out of school with, with a strong hand mm. try, trying to strengthen that hand in terms of moving forward in life and um, because of my father's death um what can I say? Um, we lived on a miners' estate then, uh, so we were on the miners' estate in Staffordshire Moorlands. Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite heavy uh, in terms of mm-hmm. criminal activity, right. uh, in terms of antisocial behaviour, and in terms of um, drug abuse and substance right. use. Um, already, the generation ahead of us, my father and my peers' fathers, um, a, a huge part of their lives was alcohol, right. uh, and, and even though they might not have admitted it. Admit it um, a lot of them were, were dependent on alcohol. Um, yeah. So I, I sort of found myself in this world with, with no father figure all of a sudden at the age of 14, um, almost finding myself in this underclass, so to speak, right. that this shadow world that was yeah. playing out uh, and where I was living. Um, it's very easy to slip into that world because people are very convincing, aren't they, in terms of trying to be your friend uh, and yeah. convincing of you that, that you're your friend. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy not, not to see that actually you're being coerced into doing certain things that you wouldn't yeah. necessarily do. Mm-hmm. Um, I stopped going to school um, right. at the age of 14, almost yeah. straight away. Um, my mum was diagnosed with manic depression after the death of my father, yeah. um, which would be diagnosed now as yeah. bipolar. Yeah. Um, so she was having a two-stage yeah. mental health issue at the time herself that was playing out. Yeah. Um, which, which was quite confusing yeah. for me as a child. Mm. Um, because 14, I was still a child. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. So I sort of yearned to be a part of something else. Um, yeah. And it was very easy for me to, to, to slip into that into that world of criminality and um, substance misuse. And, and I did. Uh, and I took it with both hands and in my household, um, as, as most of the time my mother would spend a lot of time in reclusion um, in a room, I yeah. started to have older yeah. people in, let's say. So yeah. I was so I was basically given a platform, um, my household and my mother's household, uh, and I was letting these more older people than myself to come in into that yeah. household essentially. And, and it wasn't the right thing to do and mm. and at the time I felt it was a part of something that people actually wanted me for me um, yeah. not knowing many years down the line that actually um, I was quite used and mm. yeah uh, what can I say so, so, that, so that was quite a little bit of a ropey time and I think I learned 
in those few years up until adulthood, a lot of negative behaviour, which yeah. I learned from my peers around me uh, in terms of how they dealt with things, how they dealt with each other at times. Yeah. And, and I sort of adopted some of that behaviour, um, unfortunately. Yeah. And I carried that behaviour on into my adult life. And I carried it on. And I became a functioning drug user. Uh, I would say I was functioning and also using drugs recreationally at the time, up until yeah. the age of 30. Yeah. Um, so at the age of the, uh, fast forward to the age of 30, I've managed to sort of bluff my way through life with these negative behaviours. Mm. And, and my, sort of my mm-hmm. career path at the time was with not having any sort of education, yeah. um, was low-level manual mm. labour jobs, essentially. Yeah. Um, factories, uh, yeah. labour, site labouring on building sites here and there, um, but with no clear pathway in terms of a career. Mm. It was literally take mm. whatever I can and, and play at the weekends, essentially, with recreational drugs. Um, but at the age of 30, I was living with a partner, and, uh, yeah, my mum became ill. Right. And... At all, mm-hmm. and, and it was, and it's one of those split pathways in your life, Graham. Where, where I do look back at it now and thinking, if I'd made the other decision, life might have been a little bit different. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I essentially walked out in a relationship with my partner and left the household um, and left her with two children, and mm-hmm. I went to live. Mum was looking very poorly. Mum was nearly sixty. In 2009, yeah, and I lived with mum for three months um, before my mum passed quite uh, fast. Um, she deteriorated very quickly yeah. uh, and was gone um, in three yeah. months. It was quite a, yeah, it was quite a quick turnaround, very unexpected. Um, what happened? I was given a choice. Um, my mother lived in a local authority property. Yeah. Um, I'd not been living in that property. I'd only been living there for three months. And I was told by the local authority on, on me, obviously, letting them know that my mum had passed and, and what mm. do we do now? Um, essentially, I, I was told I was uneligible for rehousing. And I was given I was given two weeks, Graham, um, to hand the keys in, um, wow. to empty the property uh, and to hand the keys yeah. in. And... Yeah, and that just what, left me... What were they expecting you to do? Totally caught me off guard. Um, I don't know. Uh, and this is... I focus a lot on the, on this today, and I think we've come a long way in, in, in terms of local authorities and how they deal with yeah. homeless applications. But at that moment yeah. in time, there was there was nothing in, in my criteria that, that allowed... That gave them any... That gave me any eligibility to, to be rehoused. I was single. Um, I had, in their eyes, I had no dependent children because the, my children were living with the mother in, yeah. a, in a home. Um, so all these things sort of went, they just went against me. Yeah. And and I have no animosity against, the, uh, against local authority whatsoever. Um, it was the case uh, and I had to deal with it, but I didn't deal with it very well. Um, I chose to continue. Um, I chose to continue using using drugs. In fact, they got worse. Graham, right. um, drug frequency got very. Uh, it got come to a daily basis. 
Um, right. So what kind of drugs was I using? Um, I was using heroin. Um, wow. I was also um, taking benzodiazepines, um, right. which uh, uh, at the time was diazepam. Um, yeah. So I was quite reliant on that. And rather than trying to deal with my situation and pick myself up and try and find a route out, I chose to rough sleep. And, yeah. and I think that was basically things happen that fast. Mm. I just think it rocked me so much. I think something happened. I'm not going to say it was a breakdown, but I just think things happened that fast and I was left in that situation so quick that yeah. I was left gobsmacked, if that makes sense. So I was numb almost. And rather than fight it and trying to get some sort of advocacy to help me in, in, in terms of finding housing, I let shame, guilt and embarrassment build up in my mindset and I chose to hide. And for eight months, I continued to rough sleep in my hometown and I was living a lie, Graham. I would go and remember it while well, I would wait for the Sainsbury's toilets to open in the morning the cleaner would come along and open the, the, the external toilets from the Sainsbury building yeah. uh, lift up the, yeah. the shutters and I would go in, I would have a wash try my best to, to get myself presentable yeah. and when anybody yeah. asked about my situation I would lie rather than face the fact that I needed help pride dictated to me that I was to lie uh, yeah. and to, con- to continue yeah. down that spiral um, eight months uh, of roughly in, in that area before before someone said, "Have you tried to, to ring a rough sleepers team?" And I'd never heard of a rough sleepers team at the time, uh-huh. so we decided to uh-huh. ring a rough sleepers team. Um, who asked me obviously because of my location at the time, yeah. being in the Moorlands, yeah. and they advised that they couldn't help me uh, in in that area. Right. Um, but luckily for me, I was advised to. If I could get to Hanley that next morning, yeah. which is about nine miles away from where I was in situ, mm. um, they will come out to me and assess me. Um, so, so off I went. Um, I walked to Hanley through the night, right. and um, they came out to me mm. on the street, um, assessed me, um, took me along to the local hostel, and and and, and this is where I'm, I'm a little bit proud in terms of how far we've come uh, yeah. in terms of how we assess and get people into into hostel and temporary accommodation. And because at the time, I had the best in that space was because they could see clearly I'd got addressed mental health issues. Right. They were unable uh, to give me a bed space. Um, but if I was, was in services at the time, they'd be able to give me that, that bed space at that very time. Right. And um, so it took me another few weeks of getting into yeah. the mental health service before I could uh, release a bed space and actually get in it. But things don't, aren't like that anymore, Graeme. It, yeah. It's a lot more, yeah. And, and yeah. I'm proud of that because I've witnessed that change. Yeah, you've been uh, part of it, of, no doubt, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, and it, 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 it's a massive one um, because what would used to happen is when you go into a temporary accommodation, and as you know, Graeme, people become homeless for all sorts of reasons. Oh, God, yeah, um, I was having yeah, you know yourself. There's that many different reasons why someone would become homeless. 
but there seemed to be only one way of doing things uh, yeah. at the time. And, and that way of doing things is once you go in, into, into your tem- temporary accommodation, the people who will be providing that service literally would want, the very first thing they would want is they would want you to fill out the housing benefit application so they can get the funding and process. Yeah. Now, if you think about yeah. someone who, who let, let's say, has suffered abuse uh, yeah. and the reason for their homelessness is through abuse uh, mm-hmm. and they're on the street because of that abuse. Mm-hmm. And they could be, be out, been out there for a long time. Yeah. All of a sudden being pulled into yeah. somewhere and the very first thing all they can ask, all they want is for you to, to, to make sure they get their funding. Then, then I think that's just a little bit, it's not very compassionate, is it? No. <laughs> I mean, but, Matt, for me, make that individual a brew and, and let's have a chat. How oh, absolutely. Just, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you absolutely. want to have a shower. You don't, you don't start filling forms in, do you? Mm. You, know, you don't say, right, sit down, they fill that form in, no. have a cup of tea and a chat, find out a bit about the person. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, to see how, how far we've come, and, and there's been a huge push, and now there is a massive focus uh, on what the sector would call a psychologically informed environment. Yeah. Uh, there's been a massive push in terms of training to frontline frontline practitioners and organisations and service providers mm. um, who now see how important that is um, in terms of making a person comfortable. Uh, let's make the person comfortable and then we'll we'll do the paperwork. It's, it's been absolutely uh, amazing um, mm. to see that happen. So what was the what was the process like once you actually found help? How did that they um, how did they how did they actually help you? Yeah, finding the help is just one part of the uh, one part of the solution, isn't it? Really, Graham, yeah. um, it's down to you as an individual, uh, and, and and this is something I speak to a lot of people about because I sort of wrestle it within myself in terms of how much do how much onus do we put on others, and how much is about personal responsibility, uh, and it's something that, that that a lot of people ask me about, uh, and and mm. I think. For me, the answer is you provide that environment and you're trusting in that environment as a solely psychologically formed environment, then, then I think everything else will come in terms of that person perceiving uh, and, and gaining trust in you as a service, if that makes sense, yeah. Graham. Because um, yeah. trust does work both ways, doesn't it? And I know when I've been in services, that, that historically, not so much today, there's been a huge focus on, on how would I put it in the deficits of you as a person, uh, yeah. and, and it seems like everyone's queuing up to you to, to let you know what's gone wrong in your life and where you should be going in life. Yeah. There's not so many people queuing up who just want to come and sit next to you and have a chat on an equal footing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's providing that space for people to to, to gain that trust in you as a service. Um, I think as much you, as it is about you trusting individuals. Yeah, and do you think it's also? Um, it's a, you know, I think. Yeah. Uh, it, I think it's a good idea as well. One of the, in all sort all sorts of arenas in life where we're trying to help people is is to actually um, have people with lived experience helping, like you're doing yourself now. You know, because yeah, that that's massive, Graham. <clears throat> uh, because you, you've actually, you know, you're helping people. You've yeah. been in their shoes. You know, I've... yeah, yeah, I totally agree. Uh, um, yeah, sorry, Graham, carry on. 
No, so I was going to say, I've, I've volunteered for um, Crisis at Christmas, a few Christmases running but down in down in London a few years ago. And, um, you know, I found I found that um, I was I was probably out of about 50 or 60 volunteers that were there for that whole Christmas week. There was about five of us that had lived experience of being homeless. And the rest of the people were doing it for all the right reasons, but they didn't know what it was like to be homeless, you know, and it was, and I, you know, I could sit down and talk to people and say, yeah, I know I've been, all right, I wasn't homeless for very long, but I've, I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to wake up in the morning and not know what that, <clears throat> what the next day holds. And um, yeah, you know, it's like, it's a pretty scary place to get to, but then, I suppose after after a few months, how how long does it actually take before, how long does it take before you think yeah when you're when you're sleeping rough, how long does it take to become kind of normal? Yeah, <laughs> that's a hard one um, to be honest. Because I, I still still now I, I don't think I, I'm normal, <laughs> and, 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 and I don't know. I, I, maybe. I like people that aren't normal because I'm one of them too. So you know, but... uh, yeah, I struggle with it, Graham, and, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I've read all the reports and I look at the figures, and, and I know the average um, roughly per age is 47 um, mm. for a man, I think, and 43 for a woman. Yeah, uh, and I think out of all my times rough sleeping, how much is that taken out on my body? If that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have reoccurring back. I have, re- I have reoccurring back pain, um, right. which I know has got to be related to my experiences. Um, so, yeah, a little part of me thinks, mm, how much is that taken out of me? Yeah. And also what, what I find, this is where I think I'm not right and I'm a little bit weird and strange. And, and, I, and I speak to, to, the, to my supervisor, I speak with a few professionals about this. Well, what are my motivations for what I do? I, I, I I'm not motivated by money. Um, no. I don't really care about having things. Mm-hmm. And, and at one point recently, I thought, am I ill? Is, well, why, why haven't I got those motivations like I see everyone else has got in the world? Why, why aren't I trying to climb the greasy pole mm-hmm. uh, in, in the career path? It, it just doesn't, it doesn't interest me one bit. So I'm sort of searching mm-hmm. motivations uh, and, and what... I've been working with in terms of is trying to latch on to something, uh, and and I've got two children who have recently had back in my life. Um, oh, brilliant! And they are a massive motivation for me, Graham. That they're a huge motivation in terms of realizing that they're quite from a similar background as me, uh, and in terms of in the future, in terms of opportunities, opportunities might be a little bit scarce. Um, yeah, from where we come from. So, so yeah, that sort of motivates me in terms of making sure that my children get the same sort of opportunities as everyone else. That's a massive yeah. motivator. But I think what motivates me is is just listening to people like you do, Graham, and, and yeah, like you said before yeah. we we started recording. Everyone has a story, and I'm so blown away by people's stories. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think. <clears throat> you know, I'm, I'm not particularly motivated by money. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got frogging me throat. I've been doing too much talking today. But uh, <laughs> I, um, 
Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the not being, you know, not being particularly motivated by money. Um, but I am motivated by the things I can do with the money. So I like going, I like going away on holiday. Well, when we can, you know, I like uh, like being able to treat my partner to weekends away and things like that. So that's what, yeah, that's what I earn the money for. But yeah, I think I, I, I'm much more motivated by experiences than things. I don't necessarily, you know, I don't, I wouldn't be interested in a big house and an expensive car, but I, I, I like nice holidays. So that's, that's my motivation for, I suppose, doing what I do and helping people and, and, you know, and sharing other people's inspiring stories. And I suppose you could look at your, you could, how old are you, how old are your children now? Right, my eldest is uh, 14, 15 in, uh, 15 in December, yeah. Right. Uh, and my youngest is 13. They were, they were quite close together. Yeah, yeah. So I suppose you could be motivated by being a role model for them. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. no. And, and I really I really want to be that. Uh, no, I right. do. Um, but I'm a bit of like we mentioned before, I, I don't feel normal at times. And, and, and this is what I learned about recently. Someone's got me onto the subject of feeling like is it imposter syndrome almost yes that, that, yes. that you feel like though that where you are now it, i just feel like it's it, it's not yeah sometimes I feel it's not real i don't deserve it um how i've got here um i have no higher education um no, i've never been to university yeah yeah this yeah yeah no that's it but but sometimes because <clears throat> I just feel sometimes I feel, especially in the sector that I work, it's quite academic heavy. Um, yeah. So sometimes I feel that I'm there as a token, um, opposed to someone who's on an equal footing with academia. And and that's probably my perceptions. That to my own admission, that that's something that I need to work on. I think you. I think you and I probably both need to realise that. Uh, I've also suffered from imposter syndrome. Yeah, and I've stood up in front of groups of young people telling my story. And in the back of my head, there's a little voice sometimes going, who do you think you are to get up and speak in front of them? But um, I've actually been told by young people that I've inspired them. So that's so whenever I whenever that happens to me now, if I think to myself, what, you know, who do you think you are, Graham Frost, you know, telling your story? Um, the other voice says, you know, you've got every right to do it because if you, if you can inspire a few young people in, you know, in the rest of my life, if I can inspire a few more young people to actually have the life that they're capable of, which is, you know, what, which is what you're doing now, you're having the life that you're capable of and you're, you're helping other people to escape from what they thought was their reality. So you, I mean, you, yeah, yeah, you've yeah. Got, you have got as much to offer in terms of your life experience than anybody that's gone to university and learned the theory. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No. 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 I would agree. Um, and and I do. I, I see how hard young students, how much hard work they put into what they do, and I have got a lot of respect for what they do. I just feel that sometimes, and you get it with all walks of life, um, it's called the us and them mentality. Yes. Uh, and we had it when I lived in temporary accommodation, the be us who were living mm. in the scheme, who were living in, in, in the hostel, so to speak, and it would be them, the people that worked there. 
Uh, and when fights broke out, you'd see the people that worked there would run behind into the glass into the glass office, lock themselves in, while the rest of us are, are left to fend for themselves in the chaos. Um, so we, we adopted that us and them. It's it's us, the residents, against them, the staff, because the staff don't understand, yeah. and this, this is how we perceived it. And, and, and yeah, so I think now, be, be doing what I do now, the us and them is the academia and, and the lived experience, if that makes sense. Yeah, and, I, did, I did used to, I mean, many, many, many years ago, um, in the 1980s, early 1980s, I moved into a flat. I'd broken up with my partner and I'd just, I'd just recovered from testicular cancer and got back on my feet and then my relationship broke up. And I moved, so I had to move out of the flat that I was living in with her because it was her place. And um, so I moved, into, I moved into a flat in South London <clears throat> where I used to live at the time. And I was in my, I was in my early 20s, I was about 23, about 24. And um, I can remember moving into this flat it was on the top floor of the house. And, you know, I had a job, I was working on the railway and everything. And I had, and, um, you know, I was doing okay. But I was, once I was starting again, I've started again about four or five times in my life, you know what I mean? And um, there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong, I don't think there's anything wrong with starting again. Because um, if you're unhappy doing something or you're unhappy with somebody, you have to start again. And um, so anyway, <clears throat> I remember, so I moved into this flat. And um, the next day I went to work early, I was on the trains, working on the trains. I came home that night about nine o'clock and I just got through the door and shut the door. I thought, well, I'm home in my own place again. Everything's going to be okay. And there was a knock on the door and it was, uh, <clears throat> it was a chap that lived downstairs. And he said to me, um, hello, he said, my name's Mike. He said, do you want to come down and have a cup of tea? And so um, I did. And we became friends and I'm still in touch with him now, like over 30 years later. But he, he, was a, he was a teacher and he'd been to university and all his, all his friends, you know, I basically made friends with a lot of his friendship group over the next two, next two or three years. And um, I realised that, you know, actually, I felt exactly like you. I felt that, I, you know, what am I doing knocking around the people that have been to university because I've only got one O level. And I haven't, you know, so I'm not as well educated as them. But then I actually found that I could add to conversations things that they couldn't because I'd lived the experience and they hadn't. They'd all grown up in, you know, relatively comfortable, you know, middle class homes or what, you know, with um, parents who stayed together and all this, that, and the other. And they, then when I sort of told them about my story, it was like, oh, that's a bit different. And they actually were, they were keen to listen to me and to learn from me. So that, yeah. could, you know, that could be something that you, you know, with your lived experience, you can help people that, are, you know, they, you can help people that are where you were, you know, a few years ago, a lot better than somebody like, you know, somebody that's, that's maybe been to university and learned, you know, they're very good people and they want to help, but they don't have that lived experience. I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah, to totally agree with you. Um, yeah, yeah. So move, moving forward, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm developing um, that understanding in terms of working uh, alongside um, academia, so to speak. Good. Um, because it is a massive part of what I do. Mm. Uh, and yeah, everyone loves a research project. 
uh, and research pro projects do uncover things. Uh, and yeah, so, so it's something I'm sort of, uh, yeah, trying, trying to get me, get stuck into uh, and try and marry up the two worlds. Yeah. Speak, because I think you're right, Graham. I think we, academia and lived experience completes each other. Um, so I think yeah, those relationships yeah, so two, are, are two sides of the same coin. Massively important, aren't they? Mm. Uh, I think those relationships, we need to make sure um, that we give a, a good chance of the two worlds um, staying together. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited to, to work on that. Yeah, brilliant. You know, it's like I, I do some work. I do some work with uh, prisons, and um, because I was, you know, I was a Borstal boy back in the back, you know, back in the nineteen seventies. I was, um, I was, you know, I was in, I was actually in Wormwood Scrubs Prison for a short time, and then, you know, when it was a Victorian prison, and you had all the slopping out and all that kind of thing, um, and so you know, I, I can actually talk about that, you know, from my lived experience, where a lot of the people who work in that sort of environment um they don't actually understand what it's like to be in those in those people's shoes at all and they do it for the all the best reasons but they don't actually they can't really identify so you know what you're doing is very special because if you're if you're you know, if you're helping people it ultimately out of homelessness and you know out of whatever addictions they've got and that kind of thing um Nobody's better at doing that than somebody who's actually been through that experience themselves. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because recently um, I received an email and it was a, basically a connection email. So one of my colleagues um, was connecting me to, to someone from an external organisation. Yeah. And they introduced me as the person who's willing to engage in basically what, 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 how we described me. And it was quite flattering. Um, he, he's willing to engage with difficult conversations um, with practitioners and, and I've never thought of it in that way before but, but I suppose I am willing to, to have those difficult conversations with practitioners mm. in terms of practice and let's have a look at this through a critical lens and let's pull it apart yeah. and let's see if we are actually doing the right thing uh, and I love those conversations and I love working in that way but to hear it from a colleague who described me as that person who's willing to have those difficult conversations? Uh, as, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose it is about having those difficult conversations at times. Uh, and yeah, try, yeah, just trying to get to the bottom of things and, and seeing if, if we can work in a better way. Uh, yeah, yeah, which I love doing. So, what do you what do you see yourself doing in the future, then, Lee? What's what's your plans for the future? Oh wow. Um, I'm not really looking that far ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm much like I, I'm, I'm assuming you, you, you felt the same way as I have, uh, and I'm doing now. I'm very grateful for where I am. Yeah. Anyway, um, there's no motivation there, to, so I'm not thinking of climbing the greasy pole uh, and trying to get myself to higher management and, and, and no. director. And I've got no in, inclination to do that whatsoever. Um, yeah, so it's, I think it's about. Keeping a presence as an individual, yeah. um, being present around people who, who are currently experiencing some of the themes that I experience. Yeah. Like eventually, end of the tunnel, so to speak, someone to to look at and say, "Well, actually, this guy was where I was, uh, and he is there now, uh, yeah. and, and, and I could possibly take that same route." So, yeah, I think it's about remaining present as a person 
and present as that person like you, Graham, uh, um, with that fascinating uh, and inspiring story. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm very happy that you've shared your story here, you know, because um, hopefully other people will hear it. And I think, you know, I think I would like to see, I would like to see you up on the stage sharing this story with more people. Mm, yeah, it's something I'd like to do in the future. Uh, I do it in my job currently, uh, yeah. but in the capacity of doing it for frontline practitioners mainly, yeah. mm. hospital teams, um, police headquarters I, I did recently. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I think I'd like to break it out more in terms of, I'd like to go into education, uh, yeah. uh, young people, because um, young people are the future. And I think if we're going to make a difference to society, Tomorrow, we need to be working alongside the children of today. Um, exactly. So yeah, that is a massive possibility for me, I think. Yeah, that's exactly what, why I do what I do, because I think, you know, there's not, um, you know, the, I, I, I often tell young people, when I speak to groups of young people, I say to them, I say, look, my generation has made a bit of a mess of the world, um, you know, but you, you guys have got the opportunity to actually put that right. And from what, from what I see... From a lot of young people um, nowadays, you know, there is the will and the ability to do that. They just need the the inspiration to actually get to do it. So maybe that's something we should both be helping with um, over the next over the next few years. Yes, definitely. So if anybody wants to contact you to speak to you about anything, what's the best what's the best way to um, get in touch with you, Lee? Well, you, there's a couple of options. Um, one of the options would be Twitter. So I use Twitter. Oh, uh, my Twitter. Twitter. Yeah, my Twitter name is, is, is The Real Norman. Um, oh, okay. The Real Norman, um, at The Real Norman on Twitter. Um, okay. So Norman was my father's name and it's my middle name. So I sort of adopted that for social media purposes. Okay. Uh, and another option would be in my professional capacity is contact me through my... Uh, work email address which is lee.dale at voicesofstoke.org.uk Brilliant Well for the minute thank you so much for being on it's been really inspiring to hear your story Lee and um, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm actually blown away because I've never, you're the first person that I've actually interviewed on the podcast that has um, you know, has actually told a story like yours and I've had lots of stories, but I've never never had one quite like that. And it's absolutely amazing and a, an honour and a privilege to have you on. And um, thank you, yeah, thank you so much for 